You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 88. Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Jenna Bental, who has been working with and studying sea otters for over a decade and is the program coordinator for a new project called Sea Otter Savvy. Sea Otter Savvy is essentially an outreach effort aimed at teaching people who recreate along the California coast how to interact with sea otters without creating harmful disturbances to the population. We've been working with Jenna and Sea Otter Savvy over the past few months to produce a short video that will help aid their outreach efforts, and we're very excited to be releasing this video today alongside this interview with Jenna. So be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode where you can check out this new video as well as learn more about Jenna and the Sea Otter Savvy program. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC88. Now, we're going to jump into our interview with Jenna. I'm Jenna Bental, and I'm the program coordinator for a multi-agency collaborative program called Sea Otter Savvy. So tell me a little bit about Sea Otter Savvy. Well, it goes back to about two years ago. Um, Every other year, there's a big meeting of all of the scientists in California that are working on sea otter projects and anyone who's really interested in staying current on what's going on with sea otter research. So that happens in Santa Cruz. It's called the Southern Sea Otter Research Update Meeting or SORUM. And at that meeting, occasionally special working groups are formed to address issues that are of particular concern. And although we've we've known that uh, disturbance to sea otters by marine recreation activities has been going on for years, ever since I've been studying sea otters, which goes back to 2001 and well before that, um, there really had not been a concerted, organized effort to try to address that problem and figure out how to to mitigate that and protect sea otters from that. So uh, because uh, a website called seaotters.com had put up a live webcam that had a 24-hour view of what was happening in the North Harbor at Moss Landing on the Monterey Bay, we really had sort of a 24-hour picture of what was going on in that area with regards to disturbance. And Drew Wharton, who's the um, developer behind seaotters.com, what really became active in voicing his concern and showing video and, and clips of, of sea otters being disturbed. And so it was really because of his, um, his activism on this point that this working group was, was organized at the SORM meeting. And so various people from different uh, organizations and agencies participated in this meeting. So we had folks from uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium, the Seattle Research and Conservation Program there, uh, University of California Santa Cruz, um, California Department of Fish and Game, Friends of the Sea Otter, seaotters.com, 
and a few other agencies participated in this meeting, and I attended. And at that point, we really started to discuss uh, moving forward with some kind of uh, strategies, organized strategies, and a program to address this issue. And probably about a year later, I would say, we received our first funding for the Seattle Savvy program and were able to move forward uh, with that program. And many of the members of that original working group are now advisors to the program that help um, provide advice and support and move the program forward. I want to get a little background on you. How did you get involved in sea otters? It was kind of an interesting story. So I did, I did my undergraduate degree at Oregon State in Corvallis. Go Beavers! And I was wrapping up. So they do a comprehensive uh, marine biology a quarter there that you spend on the coast of Oregon, Newport. They have a special campus there. And you spend 10 weeks doing nothing but uh, learning about marine biology. It's an amazing program. And that was my last uh, quarter of my last year of my, my undergraduate uh, education. And I had applied to lots of different internships and was trying to figure out uh, where I was going to go from there. And I was an older student, so I went back to school late. So I was in my late 30s by the time I was finishing my undergrad. Um, And so I hadn't really had any of my uh, other options pan out. And I was really focused actually on marine invertebrates. I was very interested in marine invertebrates and was interested in doing some monitoring and had applied for some positions related to that, and those hadn't really worked out. And I did... I was really interested in an internship in San Simeon uh, along the San Luis Obispo coastline that was monitoring sea otters. It was a sea otter research program. And the reason I was interested was twofold. I had worked for a professor uh, at Oregon State who was good friends with uh, James Estes, who is a a prominent sea otter uh, research biologist. And this, this program, um, was, he was the primary principal investigator for this, this internship position. And there was a really clear direct link to marine invertebrates. Sea otters have a very strong impact on marine invertebrate populations and on structuring nearshore communities. And so I didn't feel like I was sacrificing that interest in order to um, to do something working with sea otters and join a marine mammal research program. So I was still, I was pretty enthusiastic about this job. So on the last day of my last class, wrapping up, I got the offer to um, take this position, uh, this internship in San Simeon. And so drove everything down there in my truck and um, moved into the lighthouse at Piedras Blancas in San Simeon. And that was where I began um, my career as a sea otter uh, research biologist. And from that point, for about 13 years, including a stint, a uh, two-year stint in grad school, I, for the most part, watched wild sea otters day in and day out. So I'd spend long days watching them, and that's what I did most of the days of my week. Uh, so we were studying and following uh, sea otters that were tagged, known individuals, and collecting information on their their behavior, their movement, their foraging, their reproduction, their survival, you name it. So I conducted that work 
in places that were very remote, so there weren't very many people. So as remote as the Aleutians or, or even the Russian Far East, not a lot of people around. And I also spent a lot of time watching otters in places where there were lots of people. So places that we would now call disturbance hotspots, where you have lots of people in the water and it's also sea otter habitat. And day in and day out, I would watch from shore as the normal behaviors of sea otters were disrupted by human activities. And it was very, very frustrating for me to watch. And and it's still something that's frustrating for, for scientists to watch today. And I really was at a loss at how to deal with it. And my strategy at the time was really to yell at people <laughs> from shore. And it wasn't very satisfying. Um, It would hurt my throat. I didn't really feel like I was communicating a useful message. Um, And I do have some sympathy for people that are on the water that don't really know what's going on. And they're out trying to enjoy themselves and experience nature. And they have some crazy woman screaming at them from shore. Um, I'm sure it wasn't really a pleasant experience for them either. And, and, and I don't really think they would receive the message <laughs> that I was trying to give at the top of my lungs. So um, I actually have thought a lot about that approach and really try to, uh, have tried to um, evolve my approach considerably from that and discourage that kind of approach in others that I work with. Um, so I think the be- better option is to find opportunities to have a really good conversation with people and to educate them and to give them information before they're in that moment on the water where they're causing a disturbance and, and it's too late. So I really want to prevent uh, disturbance by just giving people a little bit of information. It's really interesting to me that you got involved with sea otter research through your interest in uh, marine invertebrates, right? Um, but then once you got involved in sea otters, I mean, you never turned back. And, you know, you say you've been watching sea otter behavior almost every day for 13 years. What is it about this species that is so interesting and engaging for you? That's a really good question. Actually, I like that you use the word engaging. Um, so I've I've hired and trained a lot of people over the years, volunteers and staff people to do the job that, that I do, watch sea otters for hours and hours every day. And one of the, the quali- qualities that I look for most when doing that is are they engaged by looking at sea otters? And it's not that big of a stretch, right? Sea otters are charismatic. They're interesting. They're not hard to look at. Um, But what people don't really appreciate is that when you're studying sea otters, you have to take that to an extreme. (laughs) So you might spend, you know, six or plus hours watching one sea otter uh, continuously and if you are not engaged by what's going on, um, that's going to be really, really difficult for you to do. So, so to answer your question as to, to why they're engaging for me, um, there's a lot of reasons. 
related to my interest in marine invertebrates, they pose really interesting uh, ecological questions and opportunities for study of things like food webs and ecosystem interactions and, and ecology. And I think those are all really important and interesting questions that engage my interest. And there's sea otters also have qualities that are really endearing that go way beyond their physical appearance. So I'm somewhat notorious for um, frowning upon the use of the word cute to describe them among um, staff that work with me. And I personally try to limit my use of that term. And the reason is this. Um, There are lots of places where people can go to if they want to find um, information about how cute otters are. If you put cute sea otters into the Google search engine, you'll get 3 million hits and places you can go to see cute pictures of sea otters. And I want people's engagement with them to be a little bit deeper than that because I find it's more enduring and creates a more um, passionate and useful bond than just that superficial appreciation that they're cute. And there are lots of other qualities about them that are really interesting that people can appreciate. And they're incredible mothers. They're unbelievably devoted mothers against tremendous odds. It's very difficult and challenging for a female sea otter to rear a pup to weaning age, especially along the central coast where sea otters are competing with each other for food resources. Um, They're they have very individual personalities. So that's something that really comes out when you're watching tagged individuals from day to day. They have personalities just like you and I. There's some that that are not the greatest mothers and most attentive. There's some that are fantastic mothers. That are, there's some that seem to be antisocial and some like to hang out more in groups. And, and they have a lot of variation in in their strategies that they use to acquire prey and, and are very um, show a lot of ingenuity in their breaching of the different anti-predator defenses of their prey. So you think about the variety of foods that they eat, like sea urchins with spines and crabs with claws and, and hard shells and clams that they have to crack open. They have to be able to deal with that uh, array of anti-predator defenses in order to, to feed themselves. So uh, all of those things, qualities of sea otters beyond their physical appearance, just make them incredibly engaging to watch. And I think that's what kept me looking over the years. You mentioned that you know, you've spent time observing sea otters in both situations that are extraordinarily remote, where there aren't any people, um, probably for hundreds of miles. And you've also obviously spent lots of time observing sea otters in these areas where there's, you know, really dense human population and, and, and sort of constant disturbance. I'm wondering if you can characterize the differences in the behavior between uh, uh, sea otters in these two very different settings. We haven't really addressed that question specifically uh, with research. So that's that's one of the things that we're trying to do with, with our citizen science program at Sea Otter Savvy. But we can imagine that their behavior would be more focused in remote places on the things that they absolutely have to do to survive, right? So you can imagine they need to 
they need to feed themselves, they need to find shelter, they need to be safe from predators, they need to rear their pups, they, they have social interactions, they have to move between foraging places and resting places, and those are things that they have to do just to survive. And in more remote areas where they're not exposed to human activities, um, that's what they need to deal with, those important survival um, components. So what you imagine, what we would imagine, is that when they're in places where they have to deal with this additional element, which is the presence of people very nearby that may alter their behavior, they have that extra energetic cost on top of all of the other things that they still have to do in order to just to get by day to day, right? So their normal sea otter activities. On top of that, they have this extra thing. So and in areas where that extra thing is very, very frequent, um, it may be happen again and again and again throughout their day. And that adds up to this big element of activity that is missing from what they would be doing in a more remote location. And we don't, like I said, we're just now collecting the data with this program that is designed to really answer that question. So I, I could only tell you about some preliminary results from the data we've collected, but over, over the long term, we'll have a better answer to how different their activity is in the presence of boats um, than it is when they don't have boats around. Let's talk a little bit about your approach towards reducing this conflict that exists between CFR populations and, and humans. How are you working to, uh, to reduce this? Well, our approach is based on a fundamental assumption that, that we feel is, is right. And that is that most of the day-to-day low-level uh, harassment and disturbance that we see, that we're witnessing, that is causing people to be frustrated and, and up in arms, um, is unintentional. So it's by unintentional, I mean people don't recognize that their behavior is causing a change in a sea otter's behavior. They don't recognize what it is that they're doing that's causing that disturbance. They don't even know what a disturbed sea otter looks like, what that behavior might look like. And they are probably not there to do harm. They don't recognize that what that by causing a change in that animal's behavioral pattern that they might actually be contributing to a harmful situation. So that's a premise that we're really launching, from which we're really launching our effort to try to give provide people with not only information uh, ahead of time that tells them that sea otters are vulnerable to disturbance, but also give them tips about how to recognize it and guidelines for how they might minimize their effect and their potential to cause disturbance to sea otters. So we really want to give them some tools that they can use before they're even on the water to uh, help minimize disturbance. So we really feel like outreach and education is an important uh, way to get the message out and get some information out and give people a tool to help them um, be more responsible viewers when they're on the kayaking or stand-up paddling or even beachcombing in areas where otters are present. How are you reaching that 
target group of, of individuals. And I mean, is that the sole source of disturbance for the population? The burning wreck activities by far are, and that I'm including lots of things in that category. That's a pretty broad category. So kayaks for sure are uh, a major uh, component of that. Stand-up paddle boards, um, eco-tour boats that are just taking people out to look for wildlife, private boaters, um, beachcombers that are walking in areas where sea otters might haul out, scuba divers, fishermen, anyone who's recreating in an area where uh, that is also sea otter habitat has the potential to cause disturbance. So we're really trying, and that can be any of us, right? That can be local people living in the area, and that can be people coming to visit the state. They are all our target audience. The general public is our target audience. And we're, what we're trying to do is, is create awareness and maybe even this may seem a bit ambitious sounding, but maybe even a new social norm of, of respect for wildlife and, and recognizing that what our impact is on wildlife and being good stewards is something that is important to keeping our, our coastal ecosystem healthy and strong. So that is my target audience. How we go about reaching them, this is something we're figuring out along the way. And, and one of our our earliest methods in our first year as a program is to try to find ambassadors for our our message. And one of the most obvious choices for an ambassador for that is are the people that are renting, uh, the operators that are renting kayaks to folks. So that way, if we make sure that their staff have all the information and resources that they need, and are communicating the message to their their customers, um, that that really maximizes our effort because we can train and work to help train their staff and provide them with materials, and then they can disseminate that to a much wider group of people. So that has been a big part of, of the program's approach in the first year to really engage um, marine rack operators. So to clarify, I'm talking about folks that are renting out kayaks, the actual owners of EcoTour um, operations that are taking boats out on the water, um, anyone who's interacting with people that are about to be uh, recreating near around sea otters or other wildlife, we try to, to use them to uh, disseminate our message. So, um, And also to create a community amongst them to work together to have consistent messaging and and work towards a common goal of preserving the wildlife that really is an important part of drawing the customers to them. Most people that are coming to rent kayaks, or many of them are coming to view wildlife and many are coming specifically to view sea otters. And so uh, the operators have a big responsibility in order to, to, to be putting responsible um, recreators on the water that know the rules and have an understanding of the vulnerabilities of wildlife and have some information at hand to help them um, be responsible. Let's talk a little bit about the messaging that you're using. I mean, for folks out there who maybe want to or have spent time recreating along along the coast uh, in areas where there are sea otters, um, you know, what do you tell folks? Like, what should folks look for? What's the behavior that they should you know, be on the lookout for to make sure that they're not disturbing groups of sea otters? Well, there's, there's really 
two levels of information that I like to give people uh, when asked that question. The, the first is sort of in the preparation category. So if you know that you're going to be going out on the water, um, say you're planning a day uh, kayaking in Elkhorn Slough, know before you go is a, good, is a good phrase to keep in mind. So do some research about where you're going, understand what wildlife you might encounter. And in the, in, in the days of the internet, it's really easy to go online and find guidelines for responsible viewing for almost any species that you might encounter. They're readily available on the web if you, if you look for them ahead of time. So have a little bit of understanding about the place that you're going to go and so you're prepared for what you might encounter while you're there. And then the second preparation point that I recommend is if, you, if you're new to kayaking, if you've never kayaked before, you're a novice, um, I suggest becoming really comfortable and familiar with your boat before you paddle out and start approaching wildlife. And the, the reason for that is People get pretty excited when they're on the water. They're excited to see things. They're excited to be trying something new. And uh, often they'll encounter a sea otter and they'll know that they need to do something like stop their boat or back away. But they really haven't taken the time to build the skills just to be able to do the very basics of maneuvering their kayak. And so that kind of gets in the way of their intention to not to cause a disturbance because they just don't know how to handle their boat. So I just suggest people spend a little bit of time when they first get in the water getting used to handling their boat. And most of the kayak operators that are renting are really great at providing a little bit of um, training and information to people to help them be to manage their boats uh, a little bit better. So that's those are the two preparation um, things that I like to ask people to do. And then we have more specific guidelines once they're on the water. And so we really wanted to take care that we were coming up with suggestions that were going to be utilized consistently and that we had agreement that these were the right guidelines to propose. And, and, and one of the confusing problems with wildlife disturbance messaging is that uh, there isn't often a lot of communication between agencies and organizations putting information out there. And so it can vary wildly in its recommendations for things like how far you should stay away and, and um, other specifics related to species. So we really wanted to try to not confuse people or try to reduce confusion and come up with consistent messaging. So we worked really hard on these. It still is a work in progress, and we're, we're um, evolving them um, as we come up with new information. The most difficult guideline to, to standardize was a distance recommendation. So everyone wants to know, how close can you get? Or the opposite of that, how far do you have to stay away? And there really isn't a legal definition of that, at least based on federal law. You've caused a disturbance once you've caused a change in that sea otter's behavior, and it doesn't matter um, what distance you were at uh, when that disturbance happened. So we just have to come up with a recommendation that we think is prudent, and that can vary depending on the area. So in places where 
otters are exposed to a lot of human activities. They become habituated. They they become disturbed at a much um, shorter distance than otters that are living in places where they hardly ever encounter a boat. So we had to consider that. And that's another thing that people need to um, find out before they go somewhere new kayaking is are are these otters going to be as used to people? We might have to stay a little bit further away than we would if we're in Moss Landing or um, Cannery, Cannery Row. So uh, we came up with a distance of five kayak lengths. And the reason that we used kayak lengths is because it's pretty hard for people to estimate distance, I find. I have trouble knowing what 50 feet or 50 meters or or 100 feet looks like and estimating that. And uh, at least if we use the kayak as a distance metric, then people have that right in front of them. And kayaks aren't all the same length, of course, but they're sort of an average length. And so five kayak lengths works out to be probably 50 to 60 feet on average. Um, And it gives people uh, a limit. They know that there is some distance that they should respect if they want to be a responsible viewer. And it, whatever distance we recommend, probably it's, they're going to push it a little bit closer than that. So we tried to be as prudent as possible while also being realistic, um, knowing how limited space can be in some of these uh, disturbance hotspot areas where people are encountering otters and they're essentially launching their kayak off the beach and they're already within 50 meters of of resting otters. So we tried to be realistic in in our recommendation there too. And so that was really the most difficult guideline to establish. And then the other ones were fairly straightforward. There There was some data from a couple of studies that were conducted by grad students in the past, uh, one by a Moss Landing student in the 90s and another by a a PhD student from Great Britain um, in the early 2000s. And so we had lots of data uh, from those studies telling us that how people approach in their boat or kayak matters. So that is to say are they paddling with their bow pointed directly at the otter or the raft of otters, or are they passing by obliquely at an angle? We say pass by parallel. Um, And both of those studies showed that direct approaches were perceived as much more threatening by sea otters intended to cause disturbance than, than approaches where the boat was passing by at an angle um, and not, Direct, pointed directly at them. So that's one of the recommendations that we made. Um, you can Any person can go out and stand on shore in Moss Landing or Monterey and watch that particular point unfold in front of them. So you can see pretty immediately how important the angle of approach is by just watching a few kayak approaches to the, to the otters there and, and how dramatically different um, the effects will be depending on how direct that approach is. So that was uh, our second recommendation. And then uh, avoiding, we have lots of boats on the water at the same time, and it's more and more every day. And so trying to get people to be aware that if uh, others are already in place viewing, viewing otters, that uh, they should probably stand back, uh, uh, wait back and, and wait for the others to move on before they approach and avoid 
creating this sort of circle of boats around uh, araptobotters, which is, is pretty scary for them and will often cause the raft to flush. So uh, that's kind of a no-brainer. Just pay attention that you're not causing this threatening circle of wolves around a, a, a raft that's trying to rest and, and um, wait your turn. Uh, be patient while others are on the water. And then probably the most important guideline that we included is is encouraging people to pay attention. And this is really something that I try to emphasize. Going back to what I said about um, being able to skillfully uh, manage your kayak, people get on the water and they're, they're new to kayaking. They're thinking about their paddle and what direction they're going in. They're excited to be on the water. They're seeing wildlife everywhere. There's other boaters around them. They're, they're making sure they stay out of the boating lanes. Uh, and then they're excited to see this animal so close that they've only seen on television before. And, and they really want to get the best look of the, at the sea otter. And they want to try and get the best picture and replicate these incredible uh, images of sea otters that you see on the Internet. And... So all of that excitement overtakes them. They're paying attention to, to those things and to their camera or their iPhone. And they're not really paying attention to the wildlife that they're approaching. So we encourage people to, to put your phone down and set your paddle down for a moment and really look at your surroundings and recognize where you are and look at what the otters are doing and watch for a reaction to your approach. And sea otters are really great in that they give you a really clear warning sign. They raise their heads up and they look at you. As soon as that sea otter is looking at you, you've entered its world. At that point, you've caused a disturbance, but it's really minor. At that point, if you stop your approach or back paddle if you need to, um, you're probably not going to cause a disturbance. If you see that head raised and you keep going forward or you just don't notice that the head is raised and looking at you and aware of you, you're very likely going to cause the next level of disturbance, which is movement of that otter away from you. And that can be in the form of either swimming away or diving and swimming away. And then you've, you've caused a, a relatively severe behavioral disturbance, and you're costing that animal energy that it maybe can't afford. So we really try to encourage people to, to pay attention, not just to sea otters. Pay attention, or, or is the harbor seal you're paddling near starting to look at you? If it is, you might want to consider that you're too close at that point, and they're giving you a great indicator that you're about to cause a disturbance. So those are the, the guidelines we've come up with that Keep uh, at least five kayak lengths away. Approach parallel rather than directly, which is perceived as much less threatening by sea otters. Uh, don't encircle otters. If others are already watching, then wait your turn. And then pay attention and look for behavior changes so that you can avoid causing further disturbance. Are you sort of studying and, like, watching these otters to, like, uh, measure the impacts of this education and outreach on the level of human disturbance? We are studying that. So uh, I mentioned earlier that we were trying to um, get more information through our citizen science program. And 
the citizen science teams are out there monitoring for for two reasons. Um, one is to gather information so that we can better understand the effects on um, of marine recreation on sea otter activity. So we're actually trying to determine um, to calculate an energetic cost of disturbance to sea otters. Um, their energy balance is really critical for their, their health and survival. And so we really want to understand how um, disturbance might uh, impact that. And we're also trying to be able to measure our program success. So we began collecting baseline data uh, before any of our outreach efforts are in effect. And we continue to collect uh, data throughout the area where we're working. Uh, and we'll continue to do that for the duration of the program. So the hope is that we'll be able to see as we implement um, our outreach strategies, we'll be able to see a measurable difference and an impact of the work that we're doing. I don't have, uh, we haven't completed analysis of those data yet, so I don't have numbers for you, but we are hoping that we'll, we'll be able to see an impact. Um, so that's, that's a statistically measurable impact that I'm talking about. I do, I can say that what I feel we have accomplished are relationships with uh, stakeholders. So really trying to build a, a positive proactive and trusting relationship with uh, people that are putting folks out on the water. And I really feel like we've made a lot of progress um, recruiting people uh, into the BC Outer Savvy program and encouraging them for promoting our messaging and really working towards um, the cohesive and, and consistent messaging. So in that regard, I can I really feel like we've had a measurable success um, already, but I can't speak yet to the the statistical numbers because we just haven't completed that work yet. Folks will be listening to this interview during Sea Otter Awareness Week, right? So yeah. give us a little bit of background on this. Uh, what is Sea Otter Awareness Week? Uh, it's I'm not sure how long it's been going on to be honest, but it's it's a week where across the country and actually I believe globally, because there are some Seattle Awareness Week events uh, that have happened internationally. Um, it's a celebration and appreciation of Seattle's and an opportunity to promote Seattle issues and conservation and education points and, and um, interest and knowledge about Seattle's. And so Everyone has different ways of celebrating. There's often speakers in different towns up and up and down the Pacific Coast. Um, special events promoting Seattle awareness. Uh, I'm participating in a, a, the town recognition of the event down in Morro Bay. Um, so the week is uh, September 18th through the 24th, and Morro Bay is going to be focusing all week on Seattle awareness, but there's uh, will be a especially high number of events on Saturday, September 24th. So I'll be down there working with one of my collaborators and partners, uh, Caro O'Brien, with the California State Parks and Seabird Protection Network, and we're going to be um, coming up with some really innovative and fun ways to uh, illustrate the guidelines, the Seattle Savvy guidelines, and also guidelines uh, to avoid disturbing, causing disturbance to seabirds. And so we're going to be right down in the Embarcadero in Moss Landing where people are just getting ready to get in the water and, and um, 
recreate amongst the wildlife there and try to reach out to them uh, in that setting and with lots of other sea otter uh, programs going on at the same time. So it's sort of just a fun way for communities and organizations um, to celebrate sea otters and to promote awareness in whatever way uh, interests them or that they think will be most effective. So there should be lots of programs uh, going on throughout the state of California and up and down the coast, and people should be on the lookout for those. We have been collaborating with you and with the Sea Otter Savvy program to produce this this new video that sort of lays out a lot of these uh, uh, a lot of this information that you talk about about how to prevent uh, human disturbance with sea otter populations um, called Sharing Space with Sea Otters. Um, so we're super excited to be releasing that video, and we're hopeful that that will uh, help you guys in your education and outreach efforts um, and, and provide an additional way to teach people um, how to be more conscious of sharing space with the sea otters that they're out recreating with. It's been really fantastic working with you on this project, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your unique perspective on sea otter conservation. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about the program, and I'm really, really excited for the launch of the video, so I look forward to that. All right, that was our conversation with sea otter expert and coordinator of the Sea Otter Savvy program, Jenna Bental. I really love Jenna's passion for sea otters and specifically her explanation of what engages her while spending countless hours observing sea otter behavior. This is a common thread throughout many of the interviews that we do with biologists working in the field. This fascination with animal behavior and the ability to watch these animals interact with each other and their environment for uh, extremely long periods of time. Of course, not everyone has the patience or interest to dedicate a large portion of their lives to observing sea otter behavior. But as Jenna explains, there are lots of people who are interested in getting out on the water to observe sea otters for shorter periods of time. Jenna explained very clearly what to keep in mind when interacting with sea otters in this way, but I will reiterate one aspect of this that I see as especially important, and that is patience. If you want to see interesting behavior and get to know the sea otter, you need to have patience and be a very careful observer. This goes for just about any type of wildlife observation. The more patience you have, the more likely you are to see something really interesting when you're out there in the field. And I'll just remind everyone that we are in the midst of Sea Otter Awareness Week right now. So if you live along the California coast, you should check out the Sea Otter Savvy website to see if there's a sea otter-themed event going on near you. We'll have this link up on the show notes page for this episode, along with our new sea otter video, Sharing Space with Sea Otters. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org EOC88. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.